Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Joining us today, Sarah Mitchell, professor and collegiate fellow at the University of Iowa. Hello, Sarah. Welcome back. Hello. Good to be here. Jonathan Hasid with us as well, associate professor of political science at Iowa State University in Ames, in our Ames studio, I believe. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Ben. Coming up a little bit later in the program, of course, you know the main event. I just wanted to forecast what we're going to be doing a little bit later in the program after we deal with New Hampshire. Will abortion prove to be a decisive election issue again for Democrats in 2024? We'll ask our analysts their thoughts on that question. Also, South Africa's case against Israel and the International Court of Justice and that possible deal uh, being negotiated now, it has been for the last few weeks, to crack down on the surge of migrants at the southern border, also to replenish possibly U.S. aid for Ukraine. Uh, we'll fit in some other things as time permits. But first of all, yesterday, Donald Trump decisively winning in New Hampshire's presidential primary. Uh, the former president beat the last major Republican challenger, Nikki Haley, by about 11 percentage points. Haley says she will stay in the race for now. Uh, President Biden won the state's Democratic primary. This despite his name not appearing on the ballot. Uh, You heard about the big write-in campaign. Uh, That was because of a state dispute with the party. So Trump is marching closer to the Republican nomination. Some say it's all but over. He is the nominee, a presumed nominee. Well, let's listen to uh, Donald Trump speaking to his uh, supporters after the win and criticizing uh, Nikki Haley. Today, I have to tell you, it was very interesting because they said, wow, what a great victory. But then somebody ran up to the stage all dressed up nicely when it was at seven. But now I just walked up and it's at 14. But she ran up when it was seven. And, you know, we have to do what's good for our party. And she was up and I said, wow, she's doing uh, like a speech like she won. She didn't win. She lost. I can go up and I can say to everybody, oh, thank you for the victory. It's wonderful. It's what or I can go up and say, who the hell was the imposter that went up on the stage before and like claimed a victory? She did very poorly, actually. Nikki Haley told her supporters yesterday evening that she isn't going anywhere. I want to congratulate Donald Trump on his victory tonight. He earned it, and I want to acknowledge that. Now, you've all heard the chatter among the political class. They're falling all over themselves, saying this race is over. Well, I have news for all of them. New Hampshire is first in the nation. It is not the last in the nation. This race is far from over. Today, we got close to half of the vote. We still have a ways to go, but we keep moving up. 
Nikki Haley last night. Uh, so uh, let's uh, hear from some Nikki Haley supporters. We know there are a number of Nikki Haley supporters here in Iowa. We had our caucuses, and you came out to caucus for her. What are your thoughts about this New Hampshire primary result? Or what are your questions uh, when this primary race um, seems all but over uh, in January, five months before the first national convention and uh, more than eight, uh, nine months before the general election. Your thoughts, your questions for our analysts, one 780 9100 one 780 or email us river at org. Sarah, start us off. Uh, what are your takeaways from this New Hampshire primary result? Well, I think on the one hand, uh, you know, the results kind of look similar to what we saw in Iowa. So Trump got 74% of Republican support in New Hampshire, while Haley got 58% of independents. Um, there are more independents that participate in the New Hampshire process. So that's why the overall race was closer. Um, but I think uh, Trump's weaker showing among independents portends negatively for him in the general election because 41% of Americans identify as independents based on a Gallup poll last August. And so that's always been the challenge, right, is uh, he's got strong support among his base and like 94% of his voters in New Hampshire consider themselves part of the mega base. Um, so, so he can do well with the base, but the question is how does that uh, translate into independent votes more in the general election? Mm-hmm. And if you look at the demographics, um, you know, the Trump was getting more support from male, less educated, lower income, more religious and more conservative voters. And again, that's similar to the exit or entrance poll, I guess they were called, in Iowa. Uh, Haley was picking up support from more liberal voters who think the economy is doing well, uh, who care more about foreign policy and abortion issues. And I think uh, that 67% of New Hampshire voters that were surveyed said that they oppose banning abortion nationwide. I think that's interesting. Uh, and also showing why Democrats will continue to emphasize that issue in the more general campaign. Mm -hmm. Jonathan, your thoughts? Uh, Well, I mean, it looks like Trump has this thing wrapped up in terms of the nomination, you know, barring, I don't know, a conviction, a criminal conviction. Um, I, you know, New Hampshire was likely to be Haley's strongest state. She did much better than anticipated, right? The polling showed her down maybe around 20 points, and she actually closed to about 11 points. So she definitely beat polling expectations in New Hampshire. But as Sarah said, you know, this is a state with a lot of independence, um, and it's just sort of out of touch with um, the rest of the American Republican Party. The New Hampshire Republican Party is, you know, more moderate, less conservative, um, mm-hmm. and you know, that ultimately made this quite favorable terrain for Haley, and she still fell short. I do not think she's going to win in South Carolina, where, of course, she used to be governor. And so it looks just like Trump is going to romp through this thing. But on the other hand, right, as Sarah pointed out, there are real signs of weakness here for Trump. Um, One poll of New Hampshire voters I saw last week suggested that something like around half, 45 percent or half of Nikki Haley voters in the primary would vote for Biden over Trump in the general election. And we're talking about quite a few Republicans as well. And so in that case, right, the fact that Trump is running as more or less an incumbent um, and is sort of barely clearing 50 percent in a not terribly competitive field uh, should be setting up all kinds of warning signs for him, for his viability in the general election. 
Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, I wonder, you know, if you're put on the hat of a campaign um, analyst or, um, <laughs> um, you know, operative for in, in the Trump uh, campaign, does this shape uh, your narrative, uh, the messages you're you're pushing out for the general election if you're looking that far ahead? I mean, it should. Right. But the the big pro Yes. I mean, it would be, you know, helpful marginally, I think, for Donald Trump to change his messaging a little bit and maybe appeal more to independent or moderate voters. But the problem is, of course, for him and his campaign is that, you know, his consciousness, his, 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 his ubiquity is so baked into the American political system now that you've got people who just won't move. You know, you've got the, the, the people who are never Trumpers inside the Republican Party, you know, voted for Haley in, in New Hampshire. And many of them say they will simply sit out during the election, regardless of what kind of outreach the Trump campaign does to them. I think a lot of independent voters feel the same way. Trump is just, you know, mm-hmm. a deeply divisive and unpopular figure, and no amount of TV advertising is going to really change his image. It's 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 too baked in already. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah, I wonder if you can take on this challenge. Can you make an idealistic case for Haley still having a shot? And if not, uh, please answer the question: Why is she staying in? Uh, I don't have an optimistic take on that. I mean, first of all, there's a there's the money, right? She's going to have to raise more money from her donors to keep going forward because she's, mm-hmm. you know, spent a vast majority of what she has in Iowa, and New Hampshire. So that's first question is how are you going to fund staying in the race? Um, the second thing, which Jonathan was alluding to, is that the the structure of the upcoming uh, caucuses and primaries are are really, you know, in Trump's favor. And so you have um, Nevada, for example, which the party decided to create its own caucus instead of there's a primary and a caucus, but only the caucus will count and only Trump is appearing in the caucus list of candidates. So he's essentially taking 100% of Nevada's delegates already. If you look at some of the bigger states that are coming up, like California, Texas, and Oklahoma, these are uh, states where the candidate would get, like in California's case, 100% of the state's delegates. So it's a winner-take-all process. And in Texas and Oklahoma, uh, in areas where the the, per, the candidate gets 50% or more of the votes, they take winner all in those areas too. And so I think, um, you know, the, if we're looking at the survey data in these states, it just suggests that there's, it's go, would be very difficult for Nikki Haley to have a path yeah. um, to getting momentum given the the structural conditions for a lot of these caucuses and primaries. Jonathan, I wonder if you can comment on uh, Trump's sharpening campaign against Haley once uh, he dispensed with DeSantis uh, after the Iowa, uh, uh, in the in the lead up to the Iowa caucuses, for instance. And we have a a, uh, a listener in in uh, Iowa City, Dan, who wants to know about this. We we saw that Trump taken uh, to casting Haley, whose parents immigrated from India, as something less than American. No surprise there. He repeatedly alluded to her first given first name as Nimarata. He explained to Fox News this weekend, citing and said something like, wherever she may come from. And and this is, you know, um, not a surprise. This is something that Trump uh, has done in the past, whether it be a a judge of Mexican heritage uh, uh, or Obama, right? Sure. I mean, you know, he's he's a virulent racist. I mean, there's, there's just no other way to say it. Uh, Trump will certainly a- increase the attacks on Nikki Haley. I also found it particularly rich 
for him to criticize somebody who didn't win an election for, you know, acting as if they did. Uh, that's, uh, you know, maybe Trump should look in the mirror on that one. Um, but, yeah, I expect that, you know, since Nikki Haley is essentially now his only serious competitor uh, in the party, that, you know, he's going to there's going to be a lot of vile and false attacks on her. Mm-hmm. OK, let's listen to a little bit more of Nikki Haley here um, uh, during her remarks. I believe this is also from um, yesterday. Um, she took aim at both Trump and Biden's ages. The other day, Donald Trump accused me of not providing security at the Capitol on January 6th. (laughs) Now, I've long called for mental competency tests for politicians over the age of 75. Okay, we'll take a short break and we'll be right back in just a moment with more of our uh, political discussion with Sarah Mitchell and Jonathan Asid. Perhaps we'll hear the entire clip back in a moment. Support for IPR comes from Orchestra Iowa, presenting Pops on the River, an outdoor concert experience with songs from the Eagles featuring the Seven Bridges Band and the entire symphony. June 1st at McGrath Amphitheater. Tickets at orchestraiowa.com. Support for IPR comes from The Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine, offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. Back with more River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer on this Politics Wednesday edition after the New Hampshire primary. Yesterday, Jonathan Hasid with us of Iowa State University, Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa, I'm Ben Kiefer, and I'm going to pay more attention to the clock uh, during this segment. (laughs) We started a little bit of a clip from uh, Nikki Haley there and uh, ran out of time. How about that? Let's play that again, because we're talking about uh, Haley in her campaign, criticizing, you know, trying to walk this line to criticize Trump in a way that doesn't lose the support of possible Trump supporters coming over to her, but also criticizing Biden. Uh, So uh, during her remarks, she took aim at both Trump and Biden's ages. Let's listen. The other day, Donald Trump accused me of not providing security at the Capitol on January 6th. (laughs) Now, I've long called for mental competency tests for politicians over the age of 75. Trump claims he'd do better than me in one of those tests. Maybe he would, maybe he wouldn't. But if he thinks that, then he should have no problem standing on a debate stage with me. Most Americans do not want a rematch between Biden and Trump. The first party to retire its 80-year-old candidate is going to be the party that wins this election. Okay, uh, Joe Biden, 80. Uh, Donald Trump, not quite 80, but uh, we, we take the point, uh, Nikki Haley there. Sarah, well, what do you make of this argument? Um, and perhaps did it get traction um, or didn't, from what you can see? Well, I think it's it would be advantageous for the Biden campaign to take advantage of, you know, what Nikki's Haley is saying here, because if you look at polls from last September, for example, uh, 74% of respondents said they had major or moderate concerns about Biden's mental acuity versus 47% for Trump. 
Um, and I think uh, if a lot of the emphasis of the people are looking at is that, you know, the gaffes uh, and misstatements that are happening have really increased frequently for Trump in the last two to three months. And mm. so he's mixed up, you know, saying that he ran against Obama rather than Biden. He's mixed up Hillary Clinton in 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 situations too. He said that Joe Biden was going to get us into World War II. Um, you know, the, the comment about uh, mixing up Pelosi and, and Haley. Um, so these are all, you know, things that are happening with much greater frequency. And so even Fox News this week was talking about it and uh, discussing, you know, like what's going on with Trump. And so, so I think mm -hmm. uh, from Biden's perspective, putting emphasis on Trump having these problems is probably will help to uh, at least wash out the difference that we saw in that survey. Mm -hmm. Jonathan, this perceived mental sharpness that Trump has or had, it could be diminished uh, with um, this is one of his advantages against Biden. He's only, what, three years younger than Biden. But when we see the mix up of Haley and Pelosi and, as Sarah mentioned, Biden, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, will that sink in or is his support so solid uh, he could do much worse and not lose much of it? He's already done much worse and not lost most <laughs> exactly. of it. I don't, yeah, I don't think, you know, his uh, perhaps uh, slipping mental acuity, if that is the case, is going to make any difference for his base. Now, of course, it may impact independents, right, who ultimately are going to decide this election. You know, you've got a, a, a baked on base for, for Trump. You've got um, a similar kind of baked on base for Biden, people who are going to vote for Biden as Democrats no matter what. And so, you know, the the election is going to come down to independence. And perhaps, uh, as as Sarah emphasizes, you know, Biden emphasizing that I'm not the only old guy in the race um, might be effective, but it certainly isn't is not going to work for Nikki Haley inside the GOP. Mm -hmm. um, Connie has a question. Um, email your questions river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Uh, uh, Connie uh, asking what might happen if Trump is convicted. Can he still run? If not, what does that mean for the other candidates? Perhaps this is why Haley is continuing, asks uh, Connie uh, there. And, you know, Donald Trump faces four criminal trials this year. Delays are underway that uh, we have to track those because the legal and political calendars shaping up so that Republicans could be designating Trump with virtually no clue about his legal issues, how they will shake out. Uh, your thoughts on Connie's question, Sarah? Well, I think the question of, you know, timing is important here because uh, none of these legal cases are going to move fast enough to affect, you know, Trump being on the ballot uh, in the general election. At least that's my impression. The case that's likely to move the most quickly is the one in New York and that regarding the financial uh, aspects of the Trump uh, organization. And so that one I could see moving given what I've been watching. Um, but that that's just going to affect right whether the Trump organization can uh, operate in the state of New York and how much in, you know, back taxes or whatever they're going to have to pay there or, or fines. Um, so these other cases like the classified documents case, the RICO case in Georgia. Um, so the things that are, you know, more serious in terms of uh, what what Trump could be charged with and found guilty of. Um, I, I don't know that the, again, that those are going to move quickly enough uh, for 
the general election balloting process. And so mm-hmm. so that's at least where I see how things stand right now. An interesting exit poll uh, result comparing Iowa to New Hampshire in uh, this uh, aspect. 42% of voters said Trump wouldn't be fit to serve as president if he's convicted of a crime in New Hampshire. That's up from 31% here in Iowa. Jonathan, your thoughts on Connie's questions in these uh, legal and political calendars uh, colliding, meshing? Yeah, I mean, I think that probably is part of Nikki Haley's calculation, right? She doesn't really have a straightforward shot to get the GOP nomination just in terms of primaries and caucuses. But, um, you know, even if the criminal cases are unlikely to happen before the election, there's other stuff happening too, right? There's the 14th Amendment disqualification, which the Colorado Supreme Court implemented in Colorado, and then the Maine Secretary of State uh, followed up in that state as well. And so, you know, in this sense, these are going to have to be adjudicated relatively quickly. The Supreme Court, I mean, unless it's incredibly foolish, will not sit on this forever, right? It's going to have to act before the election, before ballots are printed. Someone's going to have to decide, the Supreme Court is going to have to decide if, in fact, Donald Trump can be on the Colorado ballot. Um, If he's not, right, and other states take similar moves that Colorado and Maine have done, then that leaves Nikki Haley with a huge opening, potentially, you know, uh, you know, because if, if Trump simply isn't eligible to vote to be on the general election ballot in a lot of states, that's going to create a mm-hmm. lot of problems for the GOP, and it's going to make for a really messy convention. Okay, Connie, uh, there's your answer, at least from our analysts today. Let's go to our phones, one 780 or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org, as we uh, dissect the New Hampshire primary results for a few more minutes before moving on to some other um, issues. Uh, Paul is with us in Ames. Hi, Paul. Yes, um, I'm just remarking, uh, I'm a, sort of a history nut, but Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's propaganda minister, famously said that a lie repeated often enough and loud enough in the media becomes accepted fact. And, of course, he had no competition. He controlled the media completely. But when you consider that Fox News and almost every radio market in the United States has a Rush Limbaugh imitator, it's not so unusual to believe that even at this late date, a lot of Republicans think that Trump actually won the election. Mm-hmm. And that din is repeated in the uh, with other matters, too, the economy and all the things that are Republican talking points. And so that's a pretty loud shout. And it's hard for Biden and uh, anyone else to outshout these these, these people. Paul, in Ames, thank you very much. Uh, related to this, you know, we have... Uh, uh, former President Trump repeatedly flirting with a more authoritarian vision for his second term, arguing for a full presidential immunity, back to this legal ca- uh, case, even for, quote, events that cross the line. Sarah, what do you think of, of those remarks? He's saying uh, a president has carte blanche. He can do anything in office. Is that the case he's making, as you understand it? Yeah, and I think... Uh one of the reasons the Biden campaign is emphasizing that this is a fight for democracy is is because, you know, the the playbook is an authoritarian playbook. Um, it's it's out there in plain view, right, for anyone who's willing to see it. Um, so, uh, you know, saying that you're going to go after your political opponents, saying you're going to jail, you know, former generals, um, saying that. Oh, 
professors, universities, right? We're, we're the enemy <laughs> as part of this uh, playbook. Um, and, and if you follow a lot of these ideas, you know, uh, trace back to the Claremont Institute, uh, which is funded by the Devos Foundation and, and other billionaires. Um, and so that, you know, John Eastman, who was one of the architects of the January 6th uh, uh, events, right? He, he is at the Claremont Institute, um, but they've also put out a plan, right, uh, for a nationwide plan to ban abortion, to to use the Comstock Act to not allow uh, any kind of uh, medication related to abortion to be mailed across state lines. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, the, it, there, there's a multi, multi-front uh, plan that you can see if you're following where these ideas are coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and going to this point about information, um, yeah, I mean, you know, 85% of Trump voters in New Hampshire did not, do not think Biden won the 2020 election. And so this messaging about, you know, the, the, 2020 election outcome being stolen from Trump uh, not only resonated with Iowa voters, but also New Hampshire voters. And so, um, that, you know, and, and how do you convince people that that's not the case? Um, you know, there were like 90 some legal cases and Trump lost all of them, you know. Um, so there, there, there was a legal process to adjudicate that the outcome of that election. But, you know, it's very hard to convince people who who are getting information, you know, inside a bubble that that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, to finish up here and, and move on, I wanted to ask you, Jonathan, uh, about the influence of AI. And we saw that in this New Hampshire campaign. The New Hampshire Attorney General's office um, on Monday says that it's investigating reports of an apparent robocall that used artificial intelligence to mimic President Joe Biden's voice, uh, his voice uh, uh, discouraging voters in the state from coming to the polls uh, during yesterday's primary election, uh, the call underscoring the type of threat uh, posed by AI, these deep fakes um, heading into the heart of the campaign. Jonathan, before your comment on AI, what we could be in for in the coming months here, uh, let's listen to this robocall. call. This is, again, artificial intelligence mimicking President Biden's voice. We know the value of voting Democratic when our votes count. It's important that you save your vote for the November election. We'll need your help in electing Democrats up and down the ticket. Voting this Tuesday only enables the Republicans in their quest to elect Donald Trump again. Your vote makes a difference in November, not this Tuesday. If you would like to be removed from future calls, please press 2 now. All right. I work in radio. That could fool me, Jonathan. What about you? Yeah, you know, it was pretty good. And, you know, this stuff is only going to get better. Um, I mean, it's it's a scary world out there. And, of course, the First Amendment uh, protections are such that there is a lot of protection for disseminating falsehoods in the United States um, that, you know, other countries perhaps um, don't have. Uh, so yeah. in that sense, yeah, it's we're, we're in for a bumpy ride. I guess I would say that you know, there is perhaps one very small silver lining here, which is that the media environment now is so siloed and fragmented that, um, you know, fake fake stuff like this that spreads, let's say, from the gateway pundit or whatever, is not likely to actually make its way into mainstream media or be seen by, you know, a lot of independents, right? So this stuff is going to show up on the extreme right and on the extreme left. 
But my hope is that, <laughs> given how fragmented the media now are, that you know that will actually limit some of the damage. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarah, when AI and not if, but when it makes its presence felt even more and and really shapes an outcome, do you think that will be increasingly something that voters will? sort of have antenna up about, able to deflect uh, these deep fakes, be they audio deep fakes or image deep fakes, which we've seen of, seen as well? Well, yeah. And there's also, you know, video deep fakes. If, if you ever saw the, the Tom Cruise deep fake that, that M- NBC News did, <laughs> that one is pretty scary, right? Like it, it looks and sounds exactly like Tom Cruise. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, uh, the, the thing is, like, this, this misinformation is going to have an effect not only on the right, but on the left, too, because you're seeing, for example, fake videos about things that are happening in places like Gaza, and, and those are, you know, riling up young people as they're watching those. Um, and so, you know, it, it, misinformation is being directed at, at all types of populations. And, and, and so I would recommend whenever people see something on social media that's a, a video or an image, you know, go verify it with other information because, you know, that's I do that as natural course mm-hmm. just because I don't trust these things. But but I think more people would benefit from fact checking what they see before just, uh, you know, reposting it or, or believing that it's true. Right. And and, and if you're in a, a group of people at a dinner party, something you're out and you hear one of these things, uh, you do remind the group that this is all over. Uh, these deep fakes and AI can make things seem r- very real. Let's try to squeeze in uh, a question before we have to take another break. Uh, Gary in Davenport uh, asks, could the Republican nomination come down to the Republican convention, someone somehow stepping in and nominating someone else? Gary and Davenport, thanks for the question. Jonathan, what do you think about that? Do you, can you imagine circumstances in which uh, Donald Trump was out and, and somehow it comes down to, I guess, a good old-fashioned convention <laughs> that, uh, you know, surprisingly comes out with another uh, nominee? I suppose it's theoretically possible, but the odds are not high. Um, <clears throat> I think this is maybe one of the scenarios, the Hail Marys that maybe Nikki Haley is banking on. I mean, ultimately, you know, the delegates that Trump has won are then pledged to him. And so, you know, I, I have to admit, I'm not familiar enough with the ins and outs of the rules of the GOP nomination process to know what happens if Trump is disqualified from a bunch of ballots. Like, w- mm-hmm. what is the GOP going to do about that? I, d- I don't know. But okay. clearly, like efforts to remove him at the convention, uh, if they're successful, are going to you know, if they're unsuccessful, are going to tear the GOP apart. If they're successful, they're going to tear the GOP apart. Um, and it may be that that's the only way that Nikki Haley actually emerges from this as the GOP nominee. But if she does, she'll come out with a broken party. Sarah, 30 seconds on that point before we go to break. Anything to add or disagree with? Uh, no, I I bet my Americanist colleague a hundred dollars that Trump will be the nominee last summer, and looks like I'm going to pay get my payout. <laughs> Sarah Mitchell, professor at the University of Iowa, Jonathan Hasid at Iowa State University. We'll be back in just a moment. We'll move on to some other uh, topics. Let's do talk about uh, Gaza uh, and the war uh, there that Israel is conducting against Hamas. When we return, it's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from the Healing Room at Upstream Functional Medicine 
offering medical spa services that support the body's natural ability to detoxify from environmental challenges. Learn more about The Healing Room at upstreamfm.com. So glad you're with us midstream on this edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer with Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa. Jonathan Hasid of Iowa State University, our two political scientists, uh, spending a lot of time dissecting the New Hampshire primary, but moving on to some other things. Let me uh, move to the issue of abortion. It's uh, worked uh, recently in recent years very well for uh, Democrats in, in elections. And Vice President Kamala Harris blasting Republicans as extremists for trying to ban abortions. She rallied um, uh, this week in the uh, key battleground state of Wisconsin, uh, also Monday marking the 51st anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Um, She singled out Donald Trump, uh, nominating three conservative justices to the high court in this land uh, during his term, paving the way for overturning Roe v. Wade. Uh, Let's listen to both Harris and Biden speaking publicly on Monday as the administration has announced new steps uh, intended to ensure access to contraception, abortion, abortion medication and emergency abortions at hospitals. The highest court in our land, the court of Thurgood and RBG, took a constitutional right from the people of America, from the women of America. And now, on the 51st anniversary of Roe, we speak of it in the past tense. Today, in 2024, in America, women are turned away from emergency rooms, forced to travel hundreds of miles to get basic health care in another state. Okay, uh, Sarah Mitchell, uh, the vice president, followed by the president there, speaking about abortion. Will, do you think abortion proved to be a decisive election issue again for the Democrats in 2024? It's been successful for them uh, several times now, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Where it's been on the ballot or at the the forefront, uh, it, it Democrats have done really well. Um, I thought the in the more recent Ohio elections, there was a an ad that was run um, by a, a a young woman, right, who was affected by the the ban. Um, and and I think I've been seeing these kind of ads uh, coming, you know, out of women in Texas and and so on. And so. I think, you know, putting a face on the women who are affected uh, by these, uh, the bans and what kind of, like, their inability to get the health care that they need, uh, especially in situations where, uh, you know, these are life-threatening situations in many cases. Um, and so I absolutely expect the Democratic campaign to put this at the forefront, to run on it. We've already seen uh, Harris giving speeches in multiple places, uh, going to college campuses. So I think this will be a mobilizing issue for younger voters, too. And given that the the issue in Gaza, um, you know, is dividing a little bit among, mm-hmm. uh, especially among younger Democrats, I think, uh, you know, reminding them about, you know, trying to forgive student loans and, you uh, you know, all uh, the the being a pro, you know, giving people the choice in terms of their own health care. I think these are the kinds of things that the Biden campaign will try to emphasize. 
Yeah. And those the two issues, Gaza and uh, abortion rights in this country colliding uh, at an event. Uh, Biden-Harris, as I mentioned, rallying voters in Virginia during a joint campaign appearance yesterday, uh, emphasizing the stakes for reproductive rights in in this year's elections. Here is uh, President Biden with his remarks uh, and interrupted repeatedly uh, by perhaps a dozen people protesting the war in Gaza. Let's listen. Jill and I had a chance to sit down. Told you how proud we were of your courage, Amanda, standing up and speaking out on such a personal issue to help so many women. And Okay, some young voters concerned about abortion rights, Jonathan, but also uh, about what they call as genocide taking place in Gaza. I mean, certainly the situation in Gaza is, you know, ugly and horrifying. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's, it does seem to be really divisive among the left, especially the online left who are, you know, fighting viciously amongst themselves. I mean, I guess what I would like to say is that, you know, this isn't Biden's war, right? Biden didn't start it. And and yet the U.S. has influence over Israel, but that's all it has. It has influence. If, you know, if Netanyahu uh, is going to, I mean, no one can stop Netanyahu from doing what he wants to do, as as it turns out, not even the Israeli public, it seems. And so this idea that like Joe Biden can wave a magic wand and make the war stop happening is, is, is quite ridiculous. Um, but obviously, I can understand that people are trying to put pressure on the administration to, you know, use American influence to try to restrain uh, Israeli uh, influence in terms of giving them less money. Yeah, it's it's it is money, but it's also intelligence sharing. You know, it's military ties, right? It's um, you know weapons purchases. So it isn't. I mean, yes, money is of course part of you know a big part of the story. Israel is the, the U.S.'s largest recipient of foreign aid. Um, but it goes beyond that to, to other sort of cultural and, and political uh, areas of influence as well. And I suppose Biden, you know, could use those to a certain extent, but Netanyahu will ignore him. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah. Sarah, on a related issue, I know you have a you teach a class on international courts. Uh, talk about your discussion uh, uh, on the South African case against Israel in the International Court of Justice, uh, charging Israel with genocide, correct? Right. So South Africa initiated a case against Israel in the International Court of Justice, as you said, which is the judicial body of the United Nations. And it argued that Israel is in violation of its commitments under the Genocide Convention. And so the Genocide Convention has a provision which allows state members to bring disputes against other states' parties to the ICJ. Um, And so this has happened, uh, this is only the fourth time it's happened. So uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina brought a case against Serbia in 93. Um, There was a case brought by the Gambia against Myanmar uh, in terms of their genocide against the Rohingya minority in 2019. And then there was a case initiated by Ukraine in 2022, uh, alleging, uh, you know, Russia's acts of genocide in Ukraine. Um, so, so this is uh, it's interesting, I guess, that more countries are are using uh, the ICJ dispute resolution mechanism through the Genocide Convention. Um, mm-hmm. But what South Africa, first of all, is doing is calling out uh, what it sees as genocidal acts in Gaza. So that includes uh, kill, killing of Palestinians in large numbers, especially children. 
destruction of homes, um, the blockade on food, water, and medical assistance, um, the the effects essentially on hospitals and educational sites. Um, and so uh, one of the things they're asking the ICJ to do in this case is to issue provisional me measures that would essentially call for uh, Israel to stop all military action in the Gaza Strip. Um, and so, and there, there's a series of things they're asking for, but, but basically it, they're asking for a cessation of the fighting there. Yeah, and Sarah, how has Israel responded to charges of genocide? What does it say in its defense? Well, essentially it's saying, first of all, that they're acting in self-defense, right? Hamas attacked Israel, so this is their right, essentially, under the laws of warfare to respond. Um, and so uh, they also, um, you know, are saying that, you know, on procedural grounds, saying that the, the court should not have jurisdiction in this particular case because they are in a state of war. Um, and so I, th I think the, the you know, we're just talking about can the United States do anything? I think, you know, any action, well, let's say that the, the ICJ did issue provisional um, order in this case, uh, there is no enforcement mechanism. So the only enforcement that could potentially take place is for the UN Security Council to uh, to to do something. But so far, the United States has been vetoing any proposals uh, in the Security Council. And so um, so that that is interesting to think about at what point will the United States not be that veto, um, you know, depending on uh, if it perceives what Israel's doing in Gaza, you know, you know, how far does it have to go essentially for the U.S. to to not to pull back that veto? Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa, Jonathan Hasid of Iowa State University, coming up to our final minutes on this Politics Wednesday edition of our program. Uh, let's talk about immigration. I saw a new poll out this week. Uh, immigration uh, topping in this poll in terms of uh, voters' concerns, uh, even inflation. Um, a possible border deal to crack down on the surge of migrants on our southern border. Senate negotiators uh, working to win wide support for this deal on border policy. Uh, a compromise that could open the door for Republicans to vote to replenish uh, U.S. aid for Ukraine. Uh, this is a core group of negotiators. They've been working for a couple of months, I understand, uh, with the House in recess, the Senate here, with an opportunity uh, to gain momentum for this initiative. Uh, the last report I saw, uh, Jonathan, I don't know about you, but the Republican Senate leaders did not expect to vote on the bill this week. What are you watching as this group of Senate Democrats and Republicans try to hammer out uh, this deal? And, and what's at stake in your view? Well, I'll be looking for, you know, how much compromise is involved here. Uh, you know, for Senate Republicans, many of them are still willing to do the legislative acts of compromise. You know, legislation is all about give and take, right? It's about compromise. Uh, no one ever gets 100 percent of what they want. But, you know, a lot of their colleagues in the, in the, in the GOP House uh, are not interested in compromise. And so if... You know, the border bill, I don't know if 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 Tucker Carlson complains that the that the bill, as it's written, you know, gives too much power to the Democrats, then I think, you know, Speaker Mike Johnson is going to have a really heavy lift through the House. I imagine that um, it'll get through the Senate. But, you know, that I mean, <laughs> Johnson has, a, has an incredibly tiny House minority uh, and, you know, can easily be blocked. You know, as, as we've seen, the GOP can be brought to chaos by a small group of, uh, you know, recalcitrant uh, people on the far right. 
and that may happen again. Um, I, you know, it'll also be interesting to see what happens. Obviously, is, is this going to be tied to Ukraine? Um, is the funding going to be tied to Ukraine? A- and uh, is there going to be some kind of a pathway to citizenship or some kind of pathway to legality for the millions of illegal uh, undocumented immigrants already in the United States? Uh, you know, for a lot of people in the GOP base, um, any kind of action on that, I think, would be pretty unacceptable. And so it'll be interesting to see where the House, excuse me, where the Senate winds up on that. Mm-hmm. In a floor speech, the minority leader Mitch McConnell saying, quote, the entire world understands what's at stake here in the Senate in the coming weeks. Sarah, what do you see at stake in this deal being crafted? Well, I think, it, first of all, I've heard several Republicans say, like, this is the best deal we're ever going to get. And if we don't pass this, like, we're not going to get a a better deal than this going forward. And so why is it such a good deal? Uh, Well, first of all, it would toughen the asylum process and it would cut the number of migrants who could come to the southern U.S. border to make asylum claims. And so, you know, if let's say that you're you're living in a country in Central America, there are gangs that come to your house and threaten to kill you or rape you and you flee, uh, often flee to the United States seeking asylum. This happens for lots of people. Uh, Well, this proposal would toughen that process and essentially cut the number of people who could make those kind of claims. It would also give federal authorities the ability to expel migrants at the borders if the number of people seeking asylum reaches a certain number. So these are all things that Republicans have been pushing for in terms of reducing the number of asylum claims that could be made. Um, It also has uh, procedures for tracking people that are seeking asylum with things like ankle bracelet monitors. So again, a Republican complaint about the current system is that when people come in, they have to wait for a a date basically for their asylum hearing to be heard. And the the court system is currently so overloaded with the number of claims that that these people sometimes get lost uh, in the process. And so uh, Republicans uh, also would like the fact that it has this kind of monitoring system um, and so, the, yeah, these are all things that I've that I've heard uh, several Republicans on the Senate side, you know, say these are good things. And what Biden is is negotiating in response is a hundred ten billion dollar package for wartime aid for Ukraine and Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ukraine desperately needs that. It's it, running low on artillery shells and, and other. Uh, you know, it's been fighting Russia to a to a standstill essentially, but but that could change quickly if if you know, it, it, things are shifting as U.S. support has been pulled back. Um, so, so I think uh, this this is a good deal if you if you care about this issue and you want more. It also provides more funding to uh, border states and for border security. So these are all things that Republicans have been pushing for. I do think they would be crazy to walk away from this deal because it it, it has a, it probably about seventy percent of all of the things they've been trying to negotiate for. Mm-hmm. Um, Jonathan, on the way out, we have a minute or so here. Uh, I wanted to tap into your China expertise there. Oh, quickly in a in a minute or so, how does China view the challenges that we we've been talking about the, that the U.S. faces in the Middle East and Ukraine? Well, China is, is is terribly pleased that you know the U.S. attention is distracted. Um, of course, there was an election in Taiwan a couple of weeks ago, and the the most anti Beijing, the sort of most 
I don't want to say pro-Taiwan independence, but let's say the one who's least interested in cozying up to China won. And that's got to be extremely worrying uh, for the Chinese Communist Party. Of course, getting Taiwan back is arguably their top foreign policy priority. And so to the extent that the U.S. is distracted, you know, with border issues, with stuff in the Middle East, like if it if it keeps attention away from and and arms also away from Taiwan, um, that that is only to China's benefit. Uh, the, the United States has an official policy under the 1979 Taiwan Relations Act to sell arms of a, quote, defensive character to Taiwan. It's required, actually, under U.S. law. Um, and, you know, if we run, if, we, if they're all given elsewhere, that will be that would be a problem. And, and obviously the Chinese would be happy about that. Uh, so on the whole, they're you know pretty, pretty delighted by a U.S. distraction. Yeah. Uh, so distracted that they would perhaps, Jonathan, in your view, see a window for an invasion of t- Taiwan? I, d- I don't think so. I think um, that, you know, the the, 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 the the military, the People's Liberation Army, as it turns out, is absolutely riddled with corruption. I mean, we've known this for a long time, but now Xi Jinping seems to be realizing it. He has fired multiple top military commanders, including the defense, the secretary of defense, just over the last few months. Um, mm-hmm. China's nuclear forces in particular, uh, their strategic rocket forces have been just been the leadership has been decimated. Most of these people were appointed by Xi Jinping and then he got rid of them, well, suggesting well, well, there's a serious corruption problem. We'll have to leave it there. Jonathan Hasid of Iowa State University, Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa. Thank you both for your expertise. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Tomorrow on the program, we'll continue with um, immigration and border security, how a shift in immigration policy could impact us in the Midwest. Also, I'll have a conversation with Des Moines' new mayor, Connie Bozen, tomorrow on the program. Today's program produced by Caitlin Troutman with help from Maddie Willis and Steve Cooper. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.